Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Refifi is over, so it's time to Fifi again. Andy, Pete, Rafifi, mm. or du Rafifi chez les hommes. Is that how you say it? Du Rafifi chez les hommes. Chez les yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and it is uh, based on the book. Uh, by uh, I lost it. Auguste Breton, yep. I believe, and it is uh, widely uh, decried as a terrible book. <laughs> in fact, uh, in fact, I think it was Truffaut who said that this is the best crime movie made out of the worst crime book that he's ever seen or read. Wow! And uh, yes, I mean this is a real high low kind of uh, 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 experience. With this one, I've never read the book. Don't know much about the book other than what I have read researching this. It does indeed sound like a terrible book. <laughs> well, it definitely sounds like Le Breton was uh, one of those authors who cranked a lot of material out. I've never read yes, anything of his, but uh, once you've written that much, eventually you have to write uh, to write a book that's a crime story about. Uh, racism between uh, North Africans and Europeans and also necrophilia. So eventually it's all you got to shoehorn it all in there. It all gets there in the end. Doesn't That's it? right. Yeah. What is interesting uh, about that one, and the, and uh, Rafifi is is difficult to translate. It it's um, it, one of those kind of nonsense words that has come to represent like fight, trouble. If you look up the translation, it's like fisticuffs. Um, uh, but but it is uh, it's a very sort of uh, term of a certain era, and that era is not today. So even from the title, we are we are dated. It was uh, at the time when the film was made. Apparently, it was it was a an expression used where they even had to have a song in the movie defining <laughs> what it meant, just so people knew when they're watching. Oh, that's what that's it means. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That is right. I don't I, I can't think of another. Please, let's not make this a, a list candidate. Movies whose titles are explained in song. <laughs> it might be this and James Bond movies, uh, possibly. I don't, I don't know that the movie needed the song. The movie holds up for me. It is. Uh, it was an incredibly rewarding uh, experience watching this thing, uh, you know, for what I have read about what it took to to get the movie made, uh, it was uh, some real hijinks at work, uh, and and boy, does it pay off! How did it hit you? Yeah, this is a really uh, just a, a tense kind of crime thrill ride that was a very enjoyable watch. It's it is uh, you know I mean it's the, all these are crime films that we're talking about. They're about characters who are not necessarily the most likable of characters, and we certainly have that with uh, with this cast that we're looking at here as they decide to pull off this this heist of this jewelry store which um it but it becomes such a thrill as you watch them kind of put the plan in place and then execute the plan which is a you know very extended uh, portion of the middle of the film and then all of the stuff that you know it's kind of building to 
as uh, after they have finished and, and kind of the resolution of everything. It felt very, uh, I don't know, it was just, it was a, a an exciting thrill ride of a film that uh, really delivered on everything that they had going on. And uh, it's, it's interesting that Kubrick's The Killing uh, came out, I think, the very next year after this. I don't know if he had seen this or not, but um, it, it just, you know, I can't help but feel like this type of crime story with uh, double crossings and, and uh, you know, trouble and, uh, you know, struggling to actually get the plan to work. All of it just seemed like it was in the air at the time. It, it was a thrill. I absolutely loved this film. Well, I almost wonder if we needed a trope corner for... Uh for this discussion because we do have some wonderful uh, turns in this movie that have been used um, extensively um, since and, you know, prior to. But this movie just really highlights and and does exceptionally well some of the things that we've come to expect, uh, you know, I should say canonically in these kinds of of crime films. The, The smash and grab opportunity of a lifetime. The smash and grab opportunity of a lifetime presented to a recently uh, released, you know, former crook. The the girlfriend hooked up with a gangster while you were in prison. What? Oh, no. <laughs> Say it ain't so. The turn where the news about the girlfriend has made our hero change his mind. And now he has to up the ante and go for the safe crack and uh, decide to do it anyway. And I, uh, you know, I just have to steal this one more ring for my girl. Ugh, uh-huh. Caesar, you idiot. Like those, these, these are the things that, that have, that we've come to expect. And I think if you you, if you're going to outline, um, you know, things that you expect from from heist movies, you're going to get it. You know, you're going to come up eventually with this movie. It's, you know, a thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters can eventually write this movie. But one uh, I love the way Desan has has presented it. And I think the real highlight for me, which I thought was going to be a real snooze. It is the heist itself. It's essentially um, what is it? About a quarter of the movie is this silent heist like nat sound heist of them breaking into this apartment upstairs digging through the floor uh and and breaking into the jewelers uh below uh, i thought that was riveting and the fact that it is played out with just all the natural sound like you said uh, it made it all the more thrilling because it had the tension as you're kind of watching what they do and just the fascination of how they did everything how they they kind of were chipping away at the floor and then once they had a hole they kind of stuffed an umbrella down and then opened it so they could catch all the pieces and not set off the alarms <laughs> it's just like how clever was that and even just watching them how they lowered the safe to the floor i found really fascinating you know the the weight of it and how it was a very difficult thing to kind of get it down to where they needed so that the safe cracker could drill into the back of it i mean it was just all really fascinating oh and then i couldn't help but think of the film we talked about last week latrue and how long it took them to pound through that floor which they eventually do same thing here how long did it take that safe cracker to drill through the back of the safe I'm like, this is taking forever somebody is bound to uh, catch on especially because we keep seeing it's now 5 a.m the florist down the street is down there and the delivery man is driving by it's like oh my god they're they don't have a lot of time here very tense it really felt like we were with them all night and and it was i mean the floor i I couldn't help but think of latrue because of the experience with the floor i mean the hammering uh through these uh, you know through the the plaster the 
floorboards. The, I mean, the whole thing just reminded me of our obsession with using this sort of uh, experience of sound and texture to build tension. And Desant does that ex- so exceptionally well here, right? That every time they're chipping away, uh, every time they're picking up the uh, lifting up the umbrella and and pulling out these giant clumps of of plaster and and uh, cement uh i am i'm just just riddled with fear for these guys i mean it was just such a great experience there and interestingly uh, according to the uh, the great source of all things uh, movie wikipedia the high scene itself was based on an actual burglary in 1899 in marseille where a gang broke into this uh, travel agency and cut a hole in the floor and used the umbrella to catch the debris in order to make off with the contents of the jeweler's shop below. It, it's clever, cleverly uh, portrayed on screen here and um, and legitimate. <laughs> it happened. I think that's great. Although I do wonder what happened to the couple upstairs. <laughs> I, we never come back to them. They're tied up, they're gagged, and they just sit there all night. They don't make any fuss. I, I would assume that if they made a fuss that they would get uh, silenced. You know, It was one of those things where I was wondering about that, too. And I just assumed, you know, by the time that our thieves actually leave, it's so close to opening that I'm assuming that the jewelers are going to come in, Somebody's gonna realize found. what yeah. happened. The police are going to come. Everyone's going to kind of realize. And then all of a sudden, they're going to find that couple upstairs. So I can't imagine that they're tied up that long. <laughs> that long after seven hours. After, uh, <laughs> right. After the initial long right. time. <laughs> okay. And then when we're in there, um, the, that is the, the experience of time passing is excruciating. I, I thought that we weren't going to get through it with the the floor, but the safe, the intensity of drilling through that safe oh, all to get geez. to that tiny hole and the weight of the safe. Did you think how many heist movies have we seen where they actually decide to go in through the back of the safe? That seems brilliant. Yeah. More more should do that. There's always this cracking of the safe and the stethoscope on the door. And we're all trying to do that. But just drill through the back of the safe. Safe makers. <laughs> Cheaping out in the back of the right? safe. Well, it still took him hours to get through it. It was it was still <laughs> a very long time. If, if you have the time, um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's the that's the heist, and that's really I think the the central element of the film that makes this sort of stand out, and it it sets the bar for intensity. But it doesn't really end there because everything falls apart um, over the course of of the remainder of the film. This type of film, like the crime films, if you look at the crime mm-hmm. films in the U.S. in the you know twenties and thirties, um, even into the forties, that were made at the time of the production code, and we I think we talked about this back when we did uh, uh, one of the crime films that we covered yeah. uh, in I can't remember which series, but that was very much a particular. Um, uh, example of how because of the production code you could have a story about criminals but it had to end with them getting caught it had to end poorly for them and mm-hmm. uh, you know I think that certainly that vibe kind of came through in the noir films not necessarily for the same reasons this film I mean we definitely are set up with some of these criminals where you know they aren't necessarily doing nice, nice things and so 
it makes sense that we're like left in a place where they don't necessarily get away with things in the end. That certainly is the case with this film. I don't know if that was particularly the reason why uh, they chose to end the novel that way, if it was just based on the way that the novel really ended. I'm not really sure. But it definitely has that bleak feel, which I think works in context of the story with these criminals that, uh, you know, I mean, we see Tony, you know, beating on his uh, ex-girlfriend at one point. And you know, it was kind of a, this uh, horrible, strange little moment of abuse that we had. And, you know, so I was like, well, I don't feel like they're setting us up where we necessarily like these characters. Maybe Mario and and Caesar a little bit, but, uh, you know, they're... Well, they're funny. They're, they're, yeah. I mean, they're, they're the funny guys. Right. I mean, I, but, but at the same time, I just found them all really interesting characters. I just, I guess, because the 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 setups and stuff with some of the characters, particularly that bit with Tony, I guess I didn't end up being surprised with the way that the film ended. Tony, I think, was the the most interesting character for me in that perspective specifically, because everybody else, right, Joe and Mario and Caesar, they're they're progressive about their crime, right? They're they're progressive criminals, right? They're doing it, but but you don't see them actively uh, you know, doing something reprehensible in the movie, right? Yeah, I mean right. They're 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 just sort of like it's Tony, Tony, who is this aging ex-con who comes out and gets so riled up about his love for this woman and that she has betrayed him by moving on to this other gangster that he goes and beats her with a belt. And we don't actually see that. And I think that's a that's an, uh, another interesting choice that Tassan makes here by putting it, uh, having them move into the other room and the whole experience of having her take off her dress in the doorway and then move into the other room where we hear him beating her with this belt and then they come out and she doesn't say anything and they just get dressed and and it's um uh it, it it's grotesque and it, it really does do what you're describing here it makes him that sort of reprehensible character uh in a way that that reminds us that they're all criminals because i don't think joe and mario and caesar do that joe and mario and caesar i'm okay with them just being kind of the bumbling happy-go-lucky you know thieves it's it's tony who's the straight up bad guy Mario and Joe certainly seem like, you know, they have home lives. Uh, Joe has a family with, you know, a kid. Right. And it seems like it seems like the criminal world. That's just what they do as their day job. You know, they just Mm -hmm. I'm just going Mm -hmm. to work, uh, you know, get my money. I come home. I've got my family to feed. It it doesn't feel like they even really view it as necessarily uh, the being a part of the criminal underworld. It's just kind of their job. It's it's strange. But Tony definitely um, uh, do, does take that different turn. And I mean, he is the one who we meet fresh out of prison. He's released and and uh, back out into the real world. And then these guys are hitting him up for this, uh, for this new plan and everything. And I do think it's interesting also that just at a point where we feel like we may have kind of started forgetting um, about or put farther in the back of our mind as to what Joe did and how he treated his girlfriend, we do end up seeing the results on her back later in the film as to exactly yes. just how brutal of a lashing he gave her. Well, and ends up making Grutter, the the thug, kind of, it, it, it sort of rehumanizes him as he discovers that she's been 
been hit. Like it, yeah. it's who's who's the who's the good bad guy and who's the bad bad guy anymore right. in in this movie. This movie dances back and forth across the line uh, a number of of times, and and it makes it at the the real climax when Joe finally gives in to his anxiety and takes the money and goes to the house, and we have the the uh, ultimate shootout there. Uh, that is. Um, it ends up being very intense. And even though we know Joe is is the guy who stole all this stuff and went to London and hawked the jewels and got the money, um, it, it's still, you know, with great over great grieving that we have that um, that he actually loses it. And I think that moment when uh, Tony goes back to the house and we have that fantastic shot of Joe on the stairs. Uh, and and uh, Tony right next to him, um, it, it's incredibly powerful because you know that Tony's the guy who's going to have to you know try to clean this up because he's the only one with of the the four of them with the skills and the the sort of emotional aptitude to do it. Yeah, he he is the one who seems to have the smarts as to how to put a plan into place. Like they have an idea as to what they do, yeah. and initially, I mean, they don't even come to him for this big plan. They come to him to just steal. I think it's just a jewel or a couple jewels that are kept in the case at the front of the store. They're just going right, to cut window. through the glass, take the stuff, and and that was all that they had planned. He sees it as a much bigger opportunity of taking um, a lot more from the jewelry store and actually doing a full-on right. robbery with getting all the loot out of there, which I thought was uh, a, definitely something that you see with Tony is he's – I guess you would say, the brains of the operation. He's the one who really knows how to put a plan into place. One might call Tony DeSantis Hudson Hawk. Uh, <laughs> you might. Sir, I, I, I guess we could go that route. <laughs> and while I'm on the subject, is it any coincidence that Frank Stallone and Carmine Zazora played Caesar Mario and Tony Mario, respectively, in Hudson Hawk, and our protagonists here, Andy, are Tony, Caesar, and Mario? <laughs> The, the, uh, the way now that it's in our catalog, Andy. Now that Hudson Hawk is in the catalog, prepare for more of these kinds of gems. <laughs> the, the webs that you weave, Pete. The webs <laughs> that you weave. Oh boy. The yeah. uh, you know, going back to uh, you know you just brought up uh, some of these characters and uh, and our our uh, bad bad guy Gruder. Uh, I do think that it's interesting that, you know, here we have Tony established as the guy who will beat his his girlfriend because she hooked up with another guy while he was in prison. But then we also have Gruder, the bad guy, who is using his brother, who has a heroin addiction, um, and, and kind of using that as a way to get his brother to do his bidding, which I thought was an interesting thing that I wasn't expecting. Because so often in these crime stories where you have somebody who I guess you would call like the head of the organization, people are just doing stuff for him because they're a part of the organization. I think that this was the first time that I had seen, you know, somebody in the organization doing something just because... Uh, you know, the person who is the head of the organization was giving him the the fix that he needed, you know? Yeah, this is probably the saddest of the relationships in the movie in terms of the criminal relationships that that the Gruder brothers were playing, uh, using one another like this, right? That it's a criminal organization first and a family second, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that we're going to, I'm going to use you for your uh, sort of temperament as a murderer, and I'm going to drug you 
and I'm not going to look after you. I'm not going to keep you healthy. And you think in the beginning when he hides the drugs, the, there's that first interaction where where Remy is in there digging through the desk and uh, and, you know, Elder Gruder comes in and, and like takes the drugs away um, that you think, OK, maybe he's maybe it's actually a good relationship, which is totally thrown in the can later on when he gives him all the heroin he needs, all the heroin he wants, and then says, go, go take care of this guy. You're right. To a certain extent, though, this film really is about these addictions. I mean, these yeah. these guys, Tony and his team, they have such a hard time saying no to this just because, it, you know, the payoff is so potentially good, just like Remy can't say no to uh, to the drugs and like Caesar can't say no to the women. And it's interesting that these little addictions that they all have is really kind of what kind of gets all of them busted, right? I mean, because um, Gruder and his guys, he they figure out the plan because uh, Caesar gives this this ring to this uh, this you know I guess you would call her a prostitute, this dancer in this club that Gruder runs, and uh, they find out uh, who he is and uh, through her and are able to kind of figure the whole the whole plot out as far as who's got all the loot. Just the same, um, Tony and his uh, and his guys are able to figure out, well, specifically Tony, I guess, where Gruder and his team are by using uh, the the addiction and using that to their advantage by you know, getting this guy who delivers the drugs to kind of they to do so, and they follow him out there. So it's interesting the way that all of this is what really kind of unravels everything for people. Well, and also reminds you that, that the movie is about both this heist and effectively petty theft, right? Um, breaking and entering, smash and grab, and organized crime, right? It's crime against crime. And the movie is a little bit subtle on the organized crime part until we get to this, like, casually using drugs for murder and, um, you know, kidnapping kids at the end, which we haven't gotten to yet. I mean, ultimately, um, Gruder tries to to motivate action here on getting the loot, stealing the loot from the thieves uh, by kidnapping Joe's child. Um, young child. How old is is the kid? Tony. Uh, he's real young. I can't remember yeah. how old Tony is. Little kid, but uh, he's and and kidnaps him and takes him to the country house. Five year old son. Five year old son. Five year old son. Yeah. And uh, cute, adorable. This kid, mm-hmm. real sweetheart. Uh, so he kidnaps him, and they end up taking fine care of him in this country house, and. It leads to, I think, the second most intense sequence of the film, which is at the very end, <laughs> the uh, the drive from the country house through Paris, um, where we have Tony, who has been shot and is bleeding out. And the way they use the camera to capture the blood as it drips down his leg and on his fingers, uh, it is uh, terrifying. He's in a convertible, and Tonio is uh, <laughs> unbelted, just climbing all over the place. <laughs> In this car and it must be five minutes of driving through intercut <laughs> sequences of driving through paris and i'm on the edge of my seat i hated that i'm like looking staring at the movie through fingers 
that was so tense because it's like, okay, this kid is going to fall out because Tony is having a hard time paying attention because he's dying as he's trying to drive the kid home to get him back to his mom. Um, also he's got the, the, the suitcase full of all the money. So he, you know, he's <laughs> trying to make off with that. The suitcase is in the backseat next to this kid who's all over the place. So I'm like, okay, the kid's going to fall out of the car or he's going to knock the suitcase out of the car or someone's going to think that he's, you know, something's going on because he also is waving a toy gun around <laughs> and, uh, it's just incredibly tense. And we do finally get them home and, uh, just as Tony dies and kind of crashes into a wall and, uh, you know, just pass. Passersby happened to uh, you know as they as they come upon the the car accident scene, and uh, Tonio's mother comes out and gets him. We have uh, just passersby in this group surrounding the car who find the suitcase, and that's the end of uh, that's the end of the crime, and everything has been taken care of. That's right, and now uh, everybody's dead. Everybody's uh, dead. The only one who really makes off is the one who pawned, all, took all the jewelry, who bought it all in London. You know, theoretically, he still has all the jewels and can pawn it and still make money for himself. Oh, that's right. The London, uh, the London yeah. fence, the London fence. He's okay. Uh, but there is a, a one particular assassination that I I, I think is worth uh, pointing out, and that's the scene where uh, Tony kills Cesar. Um, because, you know, Cesar uh, betrayed the group. And that was not in the book, that sequence. Uh, but it leads back to uh, Desan's experience, uh, you know, as we I think you introduced last week, Desan's experience being named a communist uh, in the 1950s. You want to talk a little bit about the backstory, uh, getting it made? We talked a little bit about uh, about it already, and like you said, uh, Dassin was, um, he's an American filmmaker, but he had been named on the blacklist by director Edward Dimitrik, who named him a communist to the House Committee on Un-American, Un-American Activities, and uh, so he went to Europe because he couldn't get any work and was trying to figure out what to do. Jean-Pierre Melville was actually um, going to be directing Rififi. But um, uh, Desan came over and uh, and I guess he was just looking for some work. You know, he was kind of poking around and he had he's made some great films. I mean, um, I don't know if we've really talked much about uh, work that he's done. But before this, he did um, uh, The Naked City, Thieves Highway, Night in the City, some really fantastic films kind of right in the in the prime of the noir period. And I think some of these French filmmakers kind of respected um, the work that he had been doing. So Melville gave him his blessing to to do this film. As you mentioned, Desan did not really like this screenplay. He did not like this book that it was based on. Um, so when he went in to write the script for this, uh, which I guess he and Renee Wheeler wrote in six days, which is nuts how quickly they turned it around. And then Renee um, translated it all to French once he did it. He took some of those moments of his experience with the blacklist, and in particular, the, the one that you're talking about, about how Caesar is the one who kind of named names, and this is what you do. You don't you don't break those unwritten rules, and and uh, and Tony kills him, and that was a 
a really fantastic scene. It was just done really well, the way that Caesar kind of acknowledged and knew what was going to happen, the way the camera kind of pulled back as Tony kind of went to the doorway to get ready for it. All of it was just done really well. But um, I, I, I don't know. I think that in the process of writing this script and and finding the right way to tell it. I think DeSan really found ways to get rid of all the stuff from the book that didn't work, like you had mentioned, the different ethnicities that were originally in the in the book with, um, I can't remember, was some, some North Africans, I believe. Yeah. And... They were dark Arabs, quote, yeah. unquote. And North yeah. Africans, wasn't it? Both? Yeah, North like, Africans, yeah, it's yes, two different right. rival, rival gangs. Two different rival gangs. Yeah. And... Uh, and you know, just kind of found a way to kind of focus on the heist itself, but also had these moments that he was able to kind of pull in from his own life. I thought it was a pretty sharp way to put this story together. I, I do, too. And and it was Wheeler who wanted to make the gangsters Americans. And it was Desan who said, no, 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 we're not going to we're not going to do that. We're, we just got rid of the the other racist stuff. Let's just make this a crime <laughs> story and and see how that goes out. Getting it released in the U.S. was full of some other uh, complications, however, obviously, because yes. Desan was uh, had, had been blacklisted. Uh, seems like a, a nice little uh, shell game in order to get this in theaters. Not just because of that. Although that certainly was a part of it. And, and yeah, we didn't really say. I mean, he didn't have a big budget with this. Uh, not a lot of big stars either. It was very um, you know, kind of a minimal production that he put together here. In the process of getting it released, though, first of all, they were running into issues with a lot of countries not even wanting to release the film because of the way it depicted crime. They, they you know, some of these countries felt that this was way too realistic and it was uh, basically. I, I think Mexico banned it because there were burglaries that were mimicking the heist scene. Um, Finland, <laughs> awesome. Finland banned it because the heist scene was too realistic. Uh, a lot of critics actually said that the film seemed like an educational process, teaching people how to commit burglary. Um, Desan, you know, his response was, "I, you know, we're trying to show you how hard it is to actually pull this off. I mean, it was a very difficult thing that these guys had to put into place." It was, um, I, I think, in the UK, it and speaks to the British, I guess, um, it was one of the most successful. It was released on a double bill. It was one of the most successful double bill releases that they had. But then, as you mentioned, over here in the States, because of Descend being on the blacklist, they would not distribute it, uh, the, whoever they, they reached out to, unless that he renounced his past and declared that he was duped into subver- subversive associations. Um, Otherwise, they said if they released it, they would remove his name as writer and director. He refused. Eventually, United Artists, they set up a dummy corporation as the distributing company and distributed it with his name in the credits. And uh, that's uh, one of the first uh, places where the the Hollywood blacklist was was cracked, which is which is always great when these little things start happening. I know uh, Dalton Trumbo and Spartacus was um, was a big one that happened uh, when uh, Kirk Douglas refused to take his name off of the credits, and that was five years after this. But I think mm-hmm. um, this film, I, I I guess it it's you know they it claimed the the place of breaking the blacklist, even though it was largely kind of filmed as a French film. And then breaking the blacklist coming in, um, Spartacus was, I guess, a little different because it was a full-on U.S. production that uh, that had a blacklisted writer's name on it. 
the the Catholics didn't like it either, and I just want to highlight the Roman Catholic Legion of Decency. Mm, yes, <laughs> great. What do you think their lair looks like? <laughs> <laughs> oh my! I'm sorry, I'm sorry <laughs> to the Roman Catholic Legion of Decency. I'm sorry, but come on, that name, right? <laughs> anyway, I'm sure it's cloaks uh, like an eyes wide shut. Right. <laughs> Although I Uh, highly doubt that they have scenes like an eyes wide shot. (laughs) (laughs) So much for the decency part. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So they uh, were able to get a few cuts uh, and they got a title card added to the film uh, from the book of Proverbs, quote, when the wicked are multiplied, crime shall be multiplied, but the just shall see their downfall. And I think that's grammatical uh, attribution error, because I don't know if we're talking about the just falling or if the just are seeing the wicked fall. I think that should be clarified. So let's uh, call for some edits to the Bible. Uh, <laughs> let's, un- let's get right on that. Unclear. And I worry about the outcome for the just. You know, we didn't we uh, didn't mention in the U.S. when it was released. They did dub it at one point in one of the releases, and they they renamed it. Refifi means trouble! Exclamation point. Just to help emphasize. <laughs> yeah. the That's of the right. time. <laughs> yeah. I think that was the the Legion of Decency too. They they wanted it to be clear. <laughs> right. Refifi's bad. <laughs> 1956. <laughs> So we mentioned a couple of the uh, films that uh, Desan had done. Are you? Are, would you call yourself a uh, uh, Desan fan? Do you know uh, a lot of these movies? Um, I do have. Um, let's see, The Naked City mm-hmm. and Thieves Highway. I have both of those at home. Criterion did some nice releases of those, um, and uh, The Night in the City as well. So, so yeah, those are those are three great films of his that I. I have I have seen um, some solid stuff. I don't know if I've seen much else of his. I know he did Brute Force before those, another crime uh, kind of film noir. Um, but I mean, he had done films from the early 40s all the way up to 1980 that he was uh, directing. And uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like I need to watch more of his stuff because I do really like um, these kind of this run of four films right here. Mm-hmm. Well, and there are, I have not seen uh, enough of his films. Uh, I certainly, I haven't seen, I've seen Night in the City, uh, but I think that might be it. Uh, And so my question here is around uh, seeing him going to Europe and directing uh, this film in French. Um, How does, is there a comparison to be made uh, between his English language films? Like, does it, you know, how well does he handle? Because we have been critical in the past of uh, directors coming and directing English language films, um, you know, who for whom English is not maybe their first language. And um, so I'm curious how his direction of French holds up. I feel like he does a good job here. I mean, I, I don't know if uh, what other people have said, but I, I feel like the films that he had done were so kind of just noirish anyway that yeah. coming off of those three, especially right into Rafifi, it just seems like uh, the language barrier almost doesn't even seem like it was there. It just it works so well in context of how the stories flowed um 
one into the other. You know, it was just a, it was a, a nice series of uh, kind of dark noirish films. And here he is doing another kind of crime film. And I, I, I feel like there's less of a language barrier going this way. And that's, that's as an English speaker coming in and watching this. I don't know yeah. if the French watch them and, and can feel a kind of a different sense of, of their stories. But I mean, just coming off of Le True and then just leading into um, Le Samurai, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like this kind of fits in with, with the vibe mm-hmm. of films. And it certainly feels like it fits into the noir films as well of the American well, side. It- uh, yeah, I think so too, and it really makes me want to go back and and maybe put together a little series. Maybe it's brute force and Naked City and Night in the City and um, Deep you know, Highway. We, yeah. yeah, exactly. We we kind of build up our uh, our collection of Descent films. I I really enjoyed what uh, what he brought to this. Um, uh, the cast, obviously, one the one thing we didn't mention in in terms of we've talked about Tony and Joan Mario, it's uh, Jean uh, Jean Servais and and Carl Milner and uh, Robert Manuel. Uh, but Jules Dessin himself played Caesar, uh, and uh, he says, uh, well, "I had a very good actor cast already, and, and, but the guy never got the contract. So I put on the mustache and I do the part myself." Uh, which, <laughs> of course, uh, he's I, I, and, credited as Perlo Vita. Yes, just, just yes, to yes. Uh, I don't know, not make it seem like he's all over the place. I guess, but yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, no. Not not quite so obvious. Uh, uh, anybody in the cast else in the cast you want to? highlight? Uh, oh, I definitely think that, uh, I don't know, Jean Survey, Surveys, mm-hmm. uh, as the lead, as Tony, uh, he has a, just a presence on screen that feels very, um, uh, it works really well for crime, mm-hmm. you know? It, it, I, I think that there's something about the, 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 um, what he, the the time that he wears on his face, and you know he just feels like a, a world uh, like a weary man, and he as he's kind of starting off this film playing cards, uh, everything, and just down on his luck, he just he wears that you know he just feels like a guy who's just kind of this uh, this hangdog sort of look who's just but also you can tell that he's got that intelligence behind him so you know wizened to the world weary with it. Um, but going along with this crime anyway, I just I couldn't help but be constantly enamored by him as our lead character, uh, regardless of whether he was doing terrible acts or in the middle of his uh, uh, act of crime. I just found him to be really mesmerizing. It's, it, they they got him. Uh, I think they got him on the cheap because he was having some of his own struggles in his career uh, dealing with uh, alcoholism. And so, I mean, he has a robust list of credits. Uh, but at, at this point, it, it seems like he was he was really struggling. And, and Dessan gave him uh, this part again, because uh, for all of the reasons you just described, he ends up being in, incredible, uh, but but got him on the cheap because uh, he was. He was struggling and he wasn't being cast elsewhere. Um, so glad that he ended up in here because I, I think he lends a lot. I mean, the weight of a lot of this, of of the emotional struggle of this film is right on his shoulders. Now, he did a great job. I Honestly, I think all the cast, they they fit the roles really well, you know, I, whether it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, DeSan himself playing Caesar 
or uh, or looking at the rest of the gang, Carl uh, Moner uh, as uh, as Joe, uh, Robert Manuel as Mario. I just think that this group just worked really well, and actually um, Groder also I thought had just a really kind of in the in um, in the parlance of being the bad bad guy. I think that he had a look that actually yeah. made him look more like the bad bad guy rather than a good bad guy. Okay, so this is uh, widely classified as quintessential film noir camera Philippe Agostini. Overall, the film has a look that feels, it does feel noirish. You know, the black and white, I think, works really nicely Mm -hmm. in this film. I do feel that uh, what I really appreciated when it came time to do the actual heist, the camera work kind of just stayed back and kind of let it come through as a pretty straightforward crime. You know, we were just kind of watching and in doing so, it helped with the tension. I thought it was very effective. Describing the camera as as staying back a little bit, particularly this the the sort of very wide low shot of the downstairs as there as, as we get generally Tony walking back and forth, kind of looking out the front door, uh, builds an incredible amount of intensity and, and reveals elements of the set that. Uh, allow you to sort of experience the anxiety of the space like there it's covered in windows and so in one place you're looking at at tony uh, as he's walking over by the door and then he turns around and walks back and you see just how close the the safe is to being visible from the street like what these guys were attempting to do was a, a terrifying act for their own physical safety, and I think the camera uh, goes to great lengths to um, to give us that that sense of space uh, and and lends to the anxiety of the film. I think it's it is really special. Um, I I was I do think it's interesting the way they play with uh, hammering through the floor and the the just the angle that the camera gets on the hammering though maybe there just aren't very many angles to get on hammering through a floor uh, <laughs> but i'm wondering at now after latrue's hammering through the floor and this hammering through the floor do we get any solid hammering through the floor scenes in the samurai which i have yet to watch so uh, <laughs> very excited about our trio of hammering through the floor i i, I feel you may end up finding yourself disappointed with that one <laughs> Curses. I know we, we apparently built the wrong uh, French crime series. We really needed to incorporate <laughs> floor uh, digging in all three to really tie That's it all right. together. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We missed a huge opportunity. Uh, anyway, Philippe Agostini does some great work. And it also uh, makes me curious about some of his other um, uh, films of the era, too. Uh, he was very busy at this part of his career. Mm-hmm. Yes. George Oreck signed on to do the music. Interesting use of music and sound, and in particular, our highlight sequence of the heist. There is no music, but there does exist score to accompany it. The 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 score I I haven't listened. To, uh, did you find that score? The score that uh, was designed to accompany it. I have not, but the story, as I understand it, is that Desant said we're not going to have music during this thing. And Oryx says, yes, you are. You're going <laughs> to shoot it and you're going to say, God, I wish I had score for this thing. And you're going to want to be protected. His words, I'm going to protect you, Jules. I'm going to write you the score for this half hour sequence because you cannot do a half hour sequence without music. So he shoots it. They cut it together. He sits down next to Oryx and he plays the sequence. And Oryx says, you're right. There needs to be no music. 
So the score has been written for this sequence, and uh, they both agreed not to use it. I thought that was nice. Really interesting. I would love to yeah. know if it uh, ever did get uh, a release, though, so you could at least hear yeah, what. Yeah, I don't think it did. Yeah, exactly. I would yeah. be very curious to hear how they, they chose to score something like that. Yeah, yeah. How they would have chosen to score. Did you like the, the music otherwise? I did. I, I did like the music. And and actually, uh, Georges Auric does uh, have a cameo in the film, too, as one of the uh, card players at the beginning of the film. Uh, so he gets to pop in there, which was nice. Um, I, I do, just going back to that song, circling back, um, I, I do think it's... <laughs> Dance number? Yeah, <laughs> the, the Rififi song. Uh, I do yeah. think it's uh, it's telling that um, later in his life, uh, DeSand did admit that he regretted having that song in there because it is a title never mentioned by characters. It's never really anything. And uh, he just, he, you know, I, I guess he felt it was a little too much, you know, having to feel like... Like we were spelling it out for the audience, you know. Although I, I, though to that end, I would say, if there was no mention of it, I would constantly going, "Is somebody named Rufifi? Like, what, <laughs> what is this? Where, where does it come in? Are we going to finally get the big reveal that you know there's a person in charge of all this that's named Rufifi? What is it?" So I agree, it's too much. I think it's it it's uh, it is a silly song. However, I think the. Uh, the way they shot that sequence, the you know the the dance sequence in the middle of the movie in the club, I thought was really lovely. So take the song out of it, make it another song. I, I actually really liked the shadow dance that they did, and I thought that yeah. wasn't it was well placed and interesting to watch and compellingly shot and um, and well performed. So I am thumbs up on having something there, but Rafifi making it the Rafifi song, it does, it just confuses the story. I, I, I guess I don't feel like it confuses the story. I, on, honestly, I don't know if I mind it that much because in the period with the 50s crime films and noir films, there was definitely a trend of songs yeah. being performed in them that, I mean, may not have been quite so directly tied into the title of the film, but certainly they had songs in these films. And I guess to that end, I feel like it was more of the era than anything else. It doesn't necessarily make me feel like, well, no one was doing this. It just feels completely out of place. It feels... Mm -hmm of the era. So I guess to that end, it it doesn't end up kind of bugging me too much. But is it is it of the era as a as a song in the middle of the movie? I, I my oh, memory sure. of, of other examples, it's those those are songs that are like credit songs, opening credits. Oh no, or... there's definitely performances in the middle of a movie. You know, you look at something like I mean we've talked about it on the show, Key Largo, uh, which was a, a camera which series we did that in but that was i think bogart that was a film that had a performance in the middle of the movie and i think that there were a number of those uh films in the period that had performances that happened in the middle of the film so i i guess i don't find that it's out of place well i and that's not i, I guess that's not what i mean but i i don't remember the performance in the middle of the film was it the performance in the middle of the film to describe why the film was called Key Largo or no, to no, describe I, I'm not saying, elements? I'm not saying, that's what I'm saying. Uh, the, they weren't necessarily named the title of the film or anything like that. Yeah. But they were performances in the middle of the film. And so, okay. it, just so know, we're clear, you and I are in violent agreement. Yeah, I'm just, this. in this particular case, because yeah. Rififi is something that nobody knows what it is, the fact that it is saying what it is, I guess in the end, I find that it doesn't bug me too much. I absolutely agree, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> 
sadly, I'm glad we're in somewhat I, strong agreement. I am making, I am making, I'm only making the feeble case that I, I'm not crazy about the fact that it is Rafifi as the song because it is the title of the movie and I don't need it. But I do love that there's a performance there. Also, I don't care that much. So, well, here's the thing. <laughs> I, I hear that uh, Desan actually named the movie after the song. Because he was so taken by the song. <laughs> like, that's a great name for a movie. I, I also actually what do you know? That, it happens to be all about Le, criminals. Le Breton actually wrote the book about the song. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it all goes back to the song. Well, yes, it does. Uh, oh, boy. Goodness, I'm exhausted. Okay, that's uh, that's all I got. You want to do, do we have any uh, sequels and remakes? There was talk of it. Um, at uh, this was uh, 15 years ago now, so I, I don't think anything's happening with it. But Stone Village Pictures did acquire uh, the rights to do a remake of Rafifi. They were going to put it in a modern setting. Al Pacino was going to play the Tony character. Um, like I said, that was 15 years ago, and nothing has come of it. So I have a feeling that uh, I, at this point, I don't think anything anything is going to come of that, uh, and I have heard nothing new. So. That's where it sits. Pacino, where this, was it going to be Tony Rafifi? That would be good. <laughs> that would just, just clear it up, right? Nobody, that, that, nobody right, would ask. Just, that would be his last name. They, they just call him Thief. <laughs> right. Hey, Thief. <laughs> the Thiefster. The Thiefster. Thiefmeister. All right. Uh, okay, so uh, how to do an award season. Pretty popular film. It's this got to have done some good. Uh, it, you know, it it was a good film. It uh, got noticed. It was, uh, as we said, not necessarily the film that uh, a lot of countries wanted to play, but it still was noticed in certain circles, uh, like the Cannes Film Festival, where Jules did walk away with uh, the, a tie, actually, for Best Director. He tied with Sergei Vasilev for the film Heroes of Shipka. The film itself was nominated for the Palme d'Or, but lost to one of your favorites, Marty. A film that we Seriously? have talked about on the show. Are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, the French Syndicate of Cinema Critics did give Jules the, uh, the Critics Award for Best Film. Over here in the U.S. Uh, at the National Board of Review, they gave it the uh, National Board uh, Top Foreign Film Award. At the New York Film Critics Circle Award, this was in the year 2000, they gave Jules Desan a special award for the ingenious distribution pattern, as well as their choice <laughs> of films. And uh, the Online Film and Television Association, this was just a couple years ago. It was not, it did actually win, uh, or it was entered, I guess, that's what winning is, the uh, into their Hall of Fame, so... It's a film that people have been noticing and and talking about how um, how uh, influential it is and how great yeah. it is and you know it's uh, it's definitely a film worth looking at and talking about. Hopefully, it did some good at the box office. Well, like last week, there is not a lot of information out there about this film. The only information I could find is that Desan had a meager budget of $200,000, which is about $1.9 million in today's dollars. Um, that is, and I just said dollars. That being said, I'm not sure if it's actually the franc or the dollar. Uh, so even that information may not be accurate. Regardless, the movie was released April 13th, 1955 in France, then played at Cannes a few weeks later, and it finally made its way to the U.S. shores June 5th, 1956. Again, 
uh, we talked about its release as far as uh, how it got released. Uh, this was the same week as Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much and Kubrick's The Killing, interestingly enough, talking about a great week to go watch the new releases. That's fascinating that it gets such a close release to The Killing after coming out in Europe a year earlier. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. Timely. Well, I'll tell you what, I had a great time with this movie. Um, it just a, a wonderful experience. Uh, and like last week, I'm eager to see where the stars fall as we uh, rank it. Definitely. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And uh, you'll see all of the movies that we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it'll take you straight to Rafifi, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Rafifi or Videodrome. Rafifi. I will take Rafifi. Rafifi or All of Me. I will take Rafifi. Rafifi or Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Oh, Scott Pilgrim versus Scott, the World. Yeah, Scott Pilgrim. Rafifi or L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential. Yeah. yeah. Rafifi or Creed 2. Uh, Creed 2. Creed 2 for me. Rafifi or Live Free or Die Hard. I got to go with John uh, McClane. I think you're Live Free. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go uh, Live Free too. All right. Rafifi or Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai. Yeah, I'll say Seven Samurai. Rafifi or Rocky Balboa. Rocky Balboa. I will say Rafifi on this one. But we're going to have to go to the mat. Really? Uh-huh. Really? Yes. You're talk Rocky about Balboa bombs? had no shadow dancing, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> had him blasting <laughs> kegs okay let's do it all right here we go one, one two, two three scissors, scissors paper rock. rocky balboa oh, wins andy. oh andy <laughs> <laughs> rafifi or raise the red lantern oh i gotta go raise the red lantern i will also go raise the red lantern well that lands rafifi in spot 110 on our chart 110 out of 440 films uh, which is uh, pretty good it's about 75 percent Awesome. I that's that's pretty good. It's actually surprises me a little bit, um, especially when we get to uh, our our star ranking over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Where did you end up? I went a little higher on my chart. It landed at spot yeah. 605 out of 4297, which is about an 86 percent. I came out at 371 out of 1436, which is only a 74 uh, percent. And that seems too low for me uh if i'm to go by flick charts recommendation over at letterbox.com it should be a three and a half star review that is that's not right that's not right um <laughs> uh, the the question for i mean i had a great time with this movie i don't know what happened on flick chart flick chart broke it uh, so is this movie uh, is this a five-star movie can you answer the question where did the stars fall See, you keep putting it like that, and I get end up feeling so guilty because last yeah, week you bullied you me into raising my rating for Drew. I did, yeah. uh, and this week I feel like I'm rating it at four and a half out of five with a heart, and I feel like it's just because uh, if I'm comparing the two, I feel like you know I I, I like it just slightly less than the true. Just slightly less than the truth, and I, I yeah, and I, I I felt like in context of of the uh, I don't know in in context of the criminals and stuff, I, I uh, had a harder time liking Tony and getting into him. The boy that that uh, the scene where they're uh, actually robbing the stores. I mean, that's a five star scene though. It's pretty solid. 
It is a five-star scene, Andy. It's a five-star scene. And anything that comes after that, that <laughs> causes you to whittle the stars away, I think is, it's a fascinating question. What is that thing? Because for me, I didn't have anything that whittled the stars away. So for me, I'm going to go ahead and give it five stars and a heart, which is which is a massive conflict in my head that I have a movie that is sitting at 74% on Flickchart, but is a five-star and a heart movie for me. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how to reconcile that. Well, that's the uh, crimes I blame of Flickchart. Flickchart. Yeah, yeah, Flickchart is a difficult, uh, difficult master. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> to live with. You know, for me, I feel like the half-star uh, might have uh, might have fallen in the first half before the crime. And then as much as I enjoyed everything afterward, I don't think it ever kind of quite got back up. But still, I feel really good about the four and a half stars. And it's it is a film that I definitely would watch again. And who knows, it may be a five star next time. Outstanding. All right. Well, let's go with that. And let's also note this is coming up going to be the end of our French crime film uh, series, which I hope you don't disagree is I am feeling too short with just three films. I'm definitely feeling that and definitely want to return to this series because so far, yeah. I mean, it's just been a joy watching all these movies. Truly. So what are we going to do to wrap it up this year? We're going to be jumping forward 12 years to 1967. We're going to be looking at Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Samurai with uh, Elaine Delon. You've seen it already, right? I have seen it, it and I actually just rewatched it for the show and uh, I got to say, I'm really excited to talk about this one. Mm, are we going to go three for three five star movies on my on my letterbox? I'm very excited about this. It's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. <laughs> so much pressure. It is. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of people don't like this movie. And apparently, uh, not a lot of people are complaining about the release. Which is The weird. one one star is complaining about the release. They're complaining about the subtitles being really short. Not enough time to read them. Oh. Sorry. Yeah. They even count how many times they have problems with them. Uh <laughs> They're very specific. <laughs> very specific. Uh, well, uh, we we've got we do have a couple of two star reviews that uh, that we can share at the very bottom of the barrel. We do. Yes. Why don't you Why don't you go first this week? All right. Here we go. This is uh, by Anna Shlimovich. Two stars. Uh, uh, watched it on DVD. Who has this to say? I have decided to rewatch this movie recently with a friend who has not seen it. I remembered from years ago that the film impressed highly with its silent scene, of course and the suspense. But as it went on this time, I found it incredibly long and boring. Also moralizing in somewhat naive sense that crime is futile, all bandits die at the end. Thus, it's not even realistic, while it's certainly made in that style. Of course, it's worth watching for his past merits, Jules Dassin, the father of the famous singer, and so on. But what is of value for a modern viewer? It seems it can be used as an advertisement by the cell phone industry. What a horrible life without the iPhone! Could be one header. <laughs> And secondly, it reinforces a stereotype that French women adore male brutality. The more she is abused, the more she is ready to serve. Story of R could be another title as well. The scene of the whipping is so pathetic and devalues the hero's presumed masculinity. Is whipping a woman the only thing he could do to her in the bedroom? 
This is a faded glory piece. It's history. Yeah, oh my! Well, yeah. there's there's something to some of that. Uh, certainly the the last part, you know, yeah. the the whipping and stuff. You know, we kind of talked about that, and they are criminals. But uh, yes, I'm I'm tempted to read uh, the other two star review, but there is there are some comments on your review that I think are um, that that uh, young Werner called and he said he really would like to get a piece of. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in fact, to your review, Eric the Red responds, <laughs> God, you should, shouldn't you be somewhere watching a Justin Bieber YouTube video? Life on Earth didn't begin in 1996. <laughs> Warner's sassy today. He's sassy. He's, he's, he certainly is. He certainly is. is. Oh, dear. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.